0: Yeah, I, I sound like that, that's awful. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, we, actually, this past Thursday night, Dave gave a good message and tag on insecurity, and, you know, it was just as much for, for me as, the you know, the teenagers, so... <laughs> But I'm past that age where I sound like a barn animal, so. (laughs) We're going to be finishing the book of Numbers in our class this morning. Looking at chapters 26 to 36, I've titled this Holy and Faithful. Because there's an emphasis on the God who is holy and faithful, who calls a people to Himself to be holy and faithful. And as we uh, begin here, I'm just kind of wondering what are some of the things that have been impressed upon your heart as we've gone through Numbers and come to a close today? What are some of the things that you know, the Lord has taught you or impressed upon your hearts and Going through numbers. It's
1: very long suffering
0: salvation. Yeah. I I'm just thinking about the stake of the whole Yeah, so the the Lord being long suffering with the stubborn people providing a way of salvation for him we see that in the the serpent on the standard that's lifted up
1: yeah,
0: yeah. So, seeing, uh, you know, the Lord's faithfulness throughout history and that no, nobody can thwart His plan, you know, even Balaam and his schemes to tempt the Israelites to adultery. I, there's a lot of these situations in Scripture, where it just looks absolutely desperate. Uh, everything's about to fall apart and it hinges on one person. <laughs> and, you know, the Lord continues on, you know, you know just like with the though moabite women were used in that that temptation that you know, the lord's plan was always to extend his blessing to the nations and you see that even with ruth later in scripture who's a moabitist and uh, in the genealogy of the jews which they kind of get you know slapped in the side of the head in matthew with that because uh, you you normally wouldn't put women like that in your genealogy. At least you know, as a Jew, you would think, "Oh, well, if you do that, you're like a half breed or something like that." And it's like you remember your great 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 grandmother Ruth and Rahab the prostitute, which you're not going to call that call her that in heaven. And if you do, I'm I want to know what she's going to call you back. <laughs> 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 yeah, Susie. Um, I have just been circling words God spoke. God spoke. God
1: yeah. Spoke. And just the emphasis on that we are created to meet him, to know him. And he's such a God who knows us and desires to be known. Yeah. And This whole book is saying, but this is the way you're going to know me. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. saying, no, this is who I am, and I want you to know me that way. So it's like he's calling us up here rather than our tendency is to lower him here and make him more palatable. palatable. And it's so good of
1: him not to do that, not to lower the standard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he's not a God of a, of, a, of a man's making, like carving, that sits up there, and he has absolutely no power. Right. God does. He has all power. But he, but he doesn't, he's holy and set apart, but he isn't aloof. In a sense. Right. And, I, and I, I just grown to appreciate that and love that about him. Mm-hmm. right and it's tender like you know ministering to Aaron when he loses his two sons but he doesn't lower the standard it's right
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a, I guess, sort of ordinary glory that you don't want to overlook is you know, the, the Lord spoke, like He actually talks to people, <laughs> yeah. like you're talking to us? <laughs> you know, that that's amazing, He's and through that He's revealing who He is, but He's calling people into fellowship, His life, His joy, His rest, and it's just the, the people that nobody else would pick on the planet that He's... <laughs> calling into. It. It's not because they were the, the greatest people or the smartest people or the most skilled people or that He needed, you know, anything from them, but it's the other way around. You know, they, they needed Him, and He's delighted to, to reveal Himself as you know, the only God who meets all the hopes and needs of humanity. Yeah. Andrew, are you raising your hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Phineas was jealous with the Lord's jealousy. You know, it wasn't, you know, man's kind of jealousy, but God's jealousy, because he was jealous for the Lord's glory. He wasn't jealous because, like, you know, this is kind of inconvenient and bad for us, and we would rather be a little bit more comfortable, so, you know, that wasn't the issue, is that, you know, the Lord isn't being honored here, and, you know, Israel, you know, as the bridegroom, you know, a uh, of the Lord which one of the things that's kind of going on in a, in a word play throughout scripture is the you know baal it means husband so well, you see when Israel's given themselves to baal they're giving themselves to another husband where the Lord all, all along he's saying no you're you're in covenant with me you're you're married to me but when that other guy comes around it's going to be a problem for him you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 uh, yeah jealous love that you know mirrors God's jealous love is a a holy and righteous thing that can be reflected in a a marriage like we we want that because we're made in the the image of God, you know spouses being jealous for fidelity within their marriage, which is meant, you know, that's part of the gospel picture that's to, to be there in God's definition of marriage is that faithful covenant-keeping between two partners. All right, other things that the Lord has taught you Numbers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you regularly see that the the people in covenant with God, they're they're fickle in their performance of obedience, but he's always faithful in his promises. So he talked about that with the oracles from Balaam when it gets rehearsed over and over that these people can't be cursed because they're blessed, and you're thinking, these people should be cursed. These are bad people. It's like, but why, why, are they, why are they blessed? I mean, they're not blessed because of how they're living their lives for the Lord. <laughs> they're, they're blessed because of His promise and His faithfulness to His covenant to these people. And that, that keeps being emphasized over and over. And that's, that's one of those things that is so hard for the human heart to believe. Uh, we, we often kind of, in a way, default in our sinfulness to thinking, well, the reason that things are going so bad is because I'm so bad. Or, you know, thinking that the Lord is punishing you when there's nothing for you to be punished for because Christ has taken all of that punishment, but really believing that. and You know, coming back to, we, we were talking a little about, about insecurity here as we began this message, you know, the reason that we don't, we can be cured of insecurity and Yeah, sometimes a false sort of guilt is because we learn to think of ourselves as God thinks of us. He doesn't count us as guilty. He counts us as righteous. And he doesn't say, well, meditate on your guiltiness and that'll make you more holy. He's like, no, instead you're meditating on Christ's righteousness in your place and that's the thing that, that moves you forward. And we want to remember, I mean, when we're reading about these fickle people here in Numbers that we're really looking in the mirror. We're not reading it and going, I can't believe they would respond like that. (laughs) There's something where, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, you know, these things were written down for our instruction. They were written down for our example so we wouldn't uh, desire the, the same kinds of idolatry. You know it might be expressed in different ways like maybe you don't you don't carve a a thing out you know physically to worship but you take on an ideology that's different than how god has taught you to think or you you idolize you know wanting to have some sort of status or honor or respect or stuff or things or whatever A quote that I wanted to begin with coming into Numbers 26 to 36, it's from a, a late preacher named Leonard Ravenhill. He said, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy, then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. When you begin in Numbers 26, we see there's a census of a, a new generation that they're, they're going to enter into the land because of God's promise. I remember this whole book began with a census of a people who would die in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness, but now in chapter 26, there's a second census in the, the book of Numbers. But it's one of a a faithful people who's going to enter into the land. And both generations in the book of Numbers teach us about God's holiness. The first generation emphasizes God's holiness and judgment. But the second generation teaches about God's holiness and how He refines a people. So, He uses judgment to refine people. Holy judgment brings about holy refining and the victory of holiness you see is that God can raise up a faithful generation after an unfaithful generation. Like when you're just reading about this, it doesn't look really promising. And the, the only hope is that God would intervene and change the direction of these people's lives. Their only hope is that God would have victory in making a holy people because they weren't going to inherit it from their parents. Holiness is a a linchpin issue, not only for Israel, but it's also for all of the nations, as we've seen throughout Numbers. And it's also not just for ancient people, it's for us today. Holiness is still a linchpin issue. And when it comes to understanding God, there's no question that He's holy. He is holy, He will be holy without any fluctuation, any change of Intensity and holiness he's just always perfectly holy. But what about sinful man? You know, sinful man doesn't have the capacity to make himself holy so that he can dwell with God forever. So you remember that in the whole tabernacle worship. everybody's you know on the other side of the fence and God's in his own place dwelling there, but the only way you can come there is if there's some atonement that's made for you, but the all of the stuff in the temple worship, it has to come out to you to bring you in because there's no way that you can bring yourself in unless He comes out and He seeks and saves the lost. And so, there's something of, you know, wonderment when you come to this section in Scripture is that, you know, can it really be that You know, God would, you know, after 40 years, raise up a faithful generation that mostly only saw unfaithfulness modeled before them their entire lives. But God refined this generation through judgment. He's a part of it. They say, we don't want to do that stuff because you get those kind of things happening in your life. It seems, you know, unlikely that the wilderness generation would be the parents of the following faithful generation. You know, you can't attribute what happened to good parenting. Which I think, uh, you know, something we can glean from that is that parents aren't the producers of faith or lack of faith in their children. You know, salvation is of the Lord and not parenting methods. You know, God alone is the author and finisher of anybody's faith, and it's a miracle that God performs. That brings us back to that Ravenhill quote. Now, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy, then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. So, as we continue our, our study here, I'd like to pray for us, and we'll continue on. Our gracious Lord, we praise you as the Holy One and recognize that we have such little insight into what that truly means, but we are in wonderment of how you, the God who is completely, totally, and always holy, would condescend to us and seek us who are unholy to make us holy by providing for us. a sacrifice, an atonement, a substitute, one to be our righteousness and one who would pay our penalty, namely Jesus. We thank you for your wonderful, gracious grace toward us and pray that the sight of it in this text would give us an eagerness to be more holy, to honor you for the grace that you've shown us, but that you would also give us a concept on how to pursue holiness together, that it would not just be an idea, but something that we know how to practice, and that we would have a zeal to do that together as your people for the sake of your holy name in which we pray. Amen. Chapter 26 is another military census of the generation that's going to enter into the promised land, and when you come to this chapter, I've labeled it the faithful and the fewer because what happens if you compare these numbers or perhaps you have a chart in your study Bible, you see that some of these people go up, some of them go down, and a few to highlight there. One, you have the, the Reubenites, and they go down 2,770. Why do you think it is that the Reubenites lost some people? Korah and his rebellion. Yeah, they were part of that, that whole thing. Uh, look in 11. And it says, the sons of Korah, however, did not die. So, sometimes you're reading through these sort of things that seem really boring, like it's just a bunch of people's names and stuff, and then there's a little kind of like parenthetical statement in there that wants to highlight something. You know, why why would you be reading about the Reubenites? There's less of them, and you're like, ah, those were the Korah's rebellion people. And then why would Moses write down, the sons of Korah, however, did not die? Why does he... You know, why does he want to pound his pulpit on that one right there? Yeah, you see, they, they didn't side with their, their father in the rebellion. Their, their father was of the old generation, but they're of the new generation. And the Sons of Korah isn't a modern band, by the way. Maybe you know about them. But they're an old ancient band. And they wrote... A, a lot of psalms most of their psalms are about trusting god you think they had to do that to survive so we need to be the people who trust god or we're dead <laughs> and you see here you know in that little statement yeah you know, this is part of the the new generation that knows how to to trust god and to to worship him and it's recorded here in history also the, the Simeonites, now they have a really huge loss. They're in verse 14, and they lose 37,100 people. Simeonites, what did these guys do that led to leading over lead, losing over 37,000 people? Remember, the all peor. Yeah. So you, you read that, even just in, you know, you compare those these censuses, and you read that, oh yeah, those guys. (laughs) Remember Baal Peor. You know, they were the main idolaters in that event. But Judah roughly stays around the same. They go up by 1,900. Why do you think that Judah maintains a steady number within its tribe? Yeah, they they stay true, they stay faithful, they they stay the royal tribe who is leading the whole thing. Uh, They're the tribe from which the seed will come, the star, the scepter, the warrior shepherd, the stone of Israel. You see that there's a steadiness which God preserves there. And then you have Manasseh. Manasseh goes up huge, 20,500 Why does Manasseh have such a huge increase? And even just think about, you know, you're reading this, you know, in later generations and you're thinking, Manasseh, they went way up. Wherever there's these huge fluctuations in numbers, obviously the Lord wants you to pay attention and ask the question, why? (laughs) And we're actually about to, Read about some gals from the tribe of Manasseh. Who was Manasseh's dad? Yeah, Joseph. Joseph's name means may he add to you. And he had two sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. I, uh, I hope I'm about to find this Bible passage on their names here. Joseph, this is from Genesis 41, starting in verse 50. Now, before the year of famine, two sons were born of Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble. That's what his name means. You know, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim. And he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And then Genesis 49, super important Bible prophecy passage, uh, Jacob blessing his sons when it comes to Joseph in 49:22 says Joseph is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring its branches run over a wall and the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and they bore a grudge against him and his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob from there is the shepherd the stone of Israel and the god of your father who helps you and by The Almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the top of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers, so who's the one who's distinguished among these brothers, uh, you know, Manasseh and Ephraim? Manasseh, distinguished. How do we know? Well, 20,000. That's pretty uh, distinguishable. <laughs> but within this particular group are these Zelophehad's daughters. If you want to know how to spell that, you can just look in chapter 27 and verse 1. You see the zeal of Zelophehad's daughters. It says, the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Makir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh. The son of Joseph came near, and then you have the names of these daughters, Mala, Noah, Haglah, and Milcah, and Tirzah. And what you see, there, there's this problem that... Uh, comes up that uh, there's no men in the family to to carry on the family name now what they recognize is that this is an issue not just for their family name but for god's faithfulness because he made promises to these tribes and the continuing of their names and they want to continue as a tribe they want to go in the land because they believe in god's promises and they want to see him honored ultimately Now, you're already seeing a stark contrast from the first generation that didn't want the land. They didn't want Yahweh, didn't want to follow Him, they don't want to go in the land, they want to go back to Egypt. Second generation, they want it. We believe that God has given us an inheritance in the land and we want it. So again, you're seeing the the victory of God's holiness and that He can even reverse people's desires. He, he can change their affections toward want, what they want to pursue in life, and God gives a solution and that daughters can inherit the land, which was bizarre in this day. You know, only men and sons could inherit land, but God in His grace allows daughters to inherit land as well and when you come to toward the end of this chapter well the middle of it really 2712 Moses is reminded that he's not going to enter the land this is verse 14 it says for in the wilderness of zin during the strife of the congregation you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water now one thing you could do when that happens to you is you could whine and complain about it or you could say well it's not my fault it's those other people you know if they didn't have such bad attitudes i never would have said what i said or did what i did well moses doesn't do that you remember he was you know the the most humble man and you see his humility coming into verse 15 it says then moses spoke to yahweh saying May Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of Yahweh will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So instead of you know, blame shifting on those people, he, he, he has a concern for them. He has a, a prayer for them. He wants them to continue to have a shepherd After him. And who's that guy going to be? Don't be scared. Say it. Yeah. Joshua. All right. His name means Yahweh saves. In Greek, his name is Jesus. Yeah, same name. Yeah, in Hebrew, Yeshua. Greek, Jesus. It's a, the same name, so there's a lot of connections between, you know, Joshua, his leadership role in his life to Jesus later in Scripture. Uh, in particular here, what's emphasized is that this leader is going to be a what? Starts with sh and ends with aphard. There we go. Yeah. A shepherd which ends up connecting to, to David. You know, he's a shepherd, warrior, king guy. He writes Psalm 23, and he says, you know, Yahweh is my shepherd. And then you get to Jesus, who says, I am the good shepherd, you know, born of you know, that lineage of Judah, son of David. In this next section, you know chapters 28 through 36 you know see God raising up a new generation here and I I titled this the the fight for holiness and ra- I asked the raising up of a new generation so you see there there's a way that they're to pursue holiness it's not something that they can just sit around and wait for you know you just can't get some holiness zap that happens to you and all of a sudden, you just walk in holiness forever. But there's things to do. So in these chapters 28 through 30, uh, a worshipful community is raised up. You know, they get the instructions for the sacrifices they're to do. They're reinstructed about the the calendar and the dates that they're to keep. And verse 30 at the or chapter 30 at the end of that. You have these instructions about vows and keeping your word. Why do you think that this is a pattern that happens over and over, uh, especially here within the Israelite covenant? Why do you think there's an emphasis on somebody keeping their word after being given these sacrifices and things on their calendar? Yeah. It, First, first and foremost, because God keeps his word and you honor him as a God who, who doesn't lie and is faithful by not lying and being faithful to your word. Uh, also, when this covenant was ratified, you know, the Israelite leaders and representing everybody, they said, we will obey everything that you said. And then blood was sprinkled on them, which signified if you don't, you're dead. You know, if you don't, it's your blood. They're like, like, we got it, we agree. And they continue in this temporary covenant until Christ completes it and ratifies a new covenant in His blood where His blood is shed in their place and He is the obedience that they need in their place. He ends up keeping their vow for them. That's part of the gracious work of the future Joshua. And in chapter 31, you see the Lord, He's raising up a a pure community. They weren't just to know about the sacrifices and go through the motions. They weren't just to go through keeping the the calendar the holiness had to be put into practice it wasn't just something to know about and to be external on certain days and certain moments but uh, it was to be in uh, all of their lives and everything that they did and so they go to war with the midianites if you look in 31 8 they killed the kings of midian Along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rakim and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian, they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So you see, they're they're putting out all of the things that were tempting them toward unholiness, being used as the instrument of God's judgment and spreading his glory to the ends of the earth. But what happens in this, you read in verse, uh, well, will pick up in 15. So it says, so Moses said to them, have you spared all of the women? Because you find out they, <laughs> the, the influence of Balaam didn't totally go away. They decided to try to keep some of the women as cap- captives says, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the word of Balaam to act unfaithfully against Yahweh in the matter of Peor. So, the plague was among the congregation of Yahweh. So, honey, you see, you see how sanctification plays out. You know, if it was, was a little chart, our sanctification is like three steps forward, two steps back. Two steps forward, one back. Three steps forward, two steps back. It keeps going like that. You keep growing, but there are some steps backwards at times. They take a backward step with trying to keep some of these women as uh, war captives. They have to be cleansed again. And you see, the, the people go up and down in their faithfulness, but you do see a definite trajectory in increasing in their faithfulness. But you also see that God's not like that. He just simply remains faithful, steadfast, never wavering. And in the aftermath of this whole battle, what do you expect? You think, oh, they took these gals, probably we're going to have like another negative 20,000 or something like that happen. If you look in 31 verse 49. Chapter thirty one, verse forty-nine. the text reads, And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. No one died. So it's pointing out this is that you guys are like this in your faithfulness. You're all up and down. God is just faithful. It's like you guys just went to battle and who died? It's like nobody. It's like is that because you guys are awesome at battle? Well, some of them would think that, okay? This is going to end up being an issue in Joshua when they're unfaithful and some people die. Like, this is weird. This never happens. Now, is, is it normal for people to go to battle and come back with no casualties? Okay, that is, that is not normal. That is super normal or supernatural. But you see, Israel at this point, they're just going to think this is normal, like, you go to battle, and everybody else dies except us every time. So when that starts to happen later on in Joshua, this is really weird. <laughs> you know, what is going on here? Chapter 32, you see part of God raising up a new generation is that they're, they're going to be a, a settled community. Uh, they're, they're going to go into the land and s- certain parts of it and settle there, But one of the things that happens here is two and a half tribes go on the other side of the Jordan. The promised land is on the west side. They're supposed to, you know, go out west, sons of Israel. But the two and a half of them say, well, we want to go east on the other side of the Jordan, which is a, you know, it's a big river, you know, it's not easy to cross. This is, you know, a significant sort of separation to be making from the other nine and a half Tribes and the tribes that go over there are Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh that became massive. And one of the things that we observe here is that you know that that land also is under Israelite control and influence, but it's not the promised land. The promised land's on the west side and not the east side, and this is going to be the beginning of some problems in Israel. It's kind of foreshadowing some divisions and some issues here. thirty-two, uh, if you look in verse six, what these triumphs says, But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? <laughs> said, this is gonna be a problem. Ah, like, oh, you guys go do it. We'll just stay over here. I mean, crossing the river is kind of a problem and I mean we got sheep to slaughter and to eat and stuff. I mean we're we're having a barbecue today. And Moses says, Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel? Or, you know, that word discouragement, it's, it's translated from a word that means, you know, restraining the hearts. So there's a restraint on their heart because, they're, you know, and them staying behind and everybody else going to war, they're saying, well, we don't have unity in, in the, the congregation. We're not doing this together. And... So, there's going to be an issue of people who don't follow the Lord fully, some who do follow Him fully, and just know there's going to be problems on the east side of the Jordan as you keep reading your Bible, and this is where we're going to come across a verse that you're familiar with, but the the context of it is, you know, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh being addressed here. This is... Verse 20, so chapter 32, verse 20. So "So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before Yahweh for the war, and all of you, arm, all of you armed men, cross over the Jordan before Yahweh until he has dispossessed his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before Yahweh, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward Yahweh and toward Israel. So he's like, Hey, It's cool if you guys want to live over there, but you still have to be a part of the military. He says, And this land shall be yours for a possession before Yahweh. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against Yahweh, and be sure your sin will find you out. So don't think just because you're on the other side of the river that Yahweh isn't going to see what's going on here and that, that you won't be judged for it. This... Verse was read to me in a meeting that I had as a group of building maintenance guys and our supervisor was very uh, godly, incredibly kind and gentle man who was just trying to explain how he thought of himself as a supervisor of other men because a couple of new guys had come on staff with us. And he said, you know, men, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you to do your job to, you know, if you have a 15-minute break, you're taking a 15-minute break and not a 16-minute break. If you're, when you come in, that I don't have to tell you what to do. You can get your task. You can go do them. And when you go to do them, you're not standing around and chatting with people, but that you recognize that you've told this company, you're going to give them eight hours. If you told them you're going to give them eight hours, give them eight hours. You know, don't give them seven and a half, give them eight And he says, and if you don't, the the reason that I'm not going to micromanage you or I'm not concerned about what's going to happen is because the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. He says, I'm about to pray that if you're unfaithful in this job, that your sin will find you out and the Lord will remove you. And he said, I've seen the Lord do it. And I just want you to know that ahead of time. And he prayed that the Lord would do that. And sure enough, it actually happened to a guy. But after months and months of, you know patience and pleading with him and trying to to help him but you know that was something when i when i heard it i just thought 15 minute breaks i'm taking 10 minute breaks <laughs> yeah i'm gonna work like eight hours plus five minutes which then he told me you know stop doing that because <laughs> we end up they have to pay me overtime for that <laughs> but we we don't ever want to settle on the wrong side on anything and any stewardship that the Lord gives us, you know, whether it be you know, the the time clock or something that we promise to do with our word to you know, other people, we want to be faithful to the Lord and know that you know, we should fear the consequences of our sin. Yeah, you know, they're they're going to come around eventually, and uh, you know, just thinking about that should give you you know a, a holy fear and zeal, but also an enjoyment in the Lord and a thankfulness that He would do that to get you going in the, in the, the direction that's going to lead you away from having that pain in your life.
1: Yeah. Because I think the heart would say, Oh, I'm going to avoid doing that because I'm going to get caught. And that maybe is an initial motivator. But as we love the Lord more, oh, that He changes the heart to love Him, and
0: then that's the. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think about how you you need to keep your word even when it's to your own harm because <laughs> you didn't think they're, they're going to kind of regret being on the other side of the Jordan. You're like, Man, every time we go to war, we kind of go through this <laughs> river, but we kind of did this to ourselves. But, you know, it's just like, you know, I, I remember... Uh, You know, uh, uh, another man who had discipled me in my life talking about, you know, a job that he took and he promised to work there for a year. And after a month into it, he said, I hate this job. (laughs) I've got to get out of this somehow. But he said, I told him I would work here a year. But he said, and that's what I did and not a day longer. (laughs) But you're right to say, hey, if you said you do, you're going to do something, then do it, even if it's to your own harm, even if you go, man, i got to go across the Jordan to do this, but I said I was going to do it. (laughs) In chapter 33, you have a review of the wanderings in the wilderness and how they traveled and God raising up a new nation of conquerors. In chapter 34, you see God raising up a physically organized nation. You know, they weren't haphazard, they were Organized, and in chapter thirty-five, you see that within their governing structure, that he he was raising up a, a, a spiritually and judicially organized nation. So you have these things paired together. You, know, you 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 have their worship plus a judicial system, and you have these special cities for the the Levites as their you know. Uh, being cared for by the tithes and offerings of the people, and you have cities of refuge. Now, what, what do you think God is wanting to emphasize in caring for Levites and people who accidentally killed somebody? You know, why have like a divine OSHA sort of thing? What is it that God cares about? yeah the value of people yeah he cares about he cares about the heart he cares about justice he cares about what actually happened i think the, the key thing there is that you know, he he cares about life you know their whole infrastructure is built around protecting life so if you know a couple of guys are fell in some trees together axe head flies off kills another guy and then another guy comes out you know you killed my brother and this other guy's like i got to go to the city of refuge (laughs) you know it was an accident this has got to get worked out somehow you know he can take off to that place and god can protect life protect innocence and when i get to deuteronomy you see there's an emphasis on taking care of the roads that get you to these cities because it's it's a bad deal if you're being pursued and you know the road's really hard to travel that's not to your advantage so it's, you know, why, why care for roads? It's like because, you know, our God is a God who cares about life. What you think, you know, that's still a, a similar thing to be considered in our own day. You know, why fill the potholes? You know, because we care about life. You know, why put a stop sign there? Why uh, have, you know, highway patrol? It's Because like God cares about life. And what God's doing here and, you know, showing that He cares about life, He's raising up a generation who would also care about life and living a holy life. You know, living a holy life even in how they respond to Levites, city of refuge, how they do their roads. You know, everything that they do in life is tied to holiness. You know, holiness wasn't just something that they did at certain festivals or when they were offering a sacrifice, but it was in everything they did in life in chapter thirty-six, we see the raising up of a generation that's concerned about maintaining the land. So we come back to Zelophehad's daughters from the tribe of Manasseh, which grew to be massive, which kind of put a you know highlights them within this generation. They're kind of the bookends within this section. It starts with Zelophehad's daughters, and then they show up again. Here in scripture. And the concern here is well, what happens if they, they marry a fellow from another tribe? Does that tribe then inherit the land that was promised to Zelophehad? Now, these ladies weren't just concerned about having something for themselves, but you got to recognize their, their zeal was for what the Lord promised to come to fruition. You know, what's ultimately at, at stake here is the faithfulness of God's name. And so they're wanting to know, how is this going to work? You know, what if, what if my sister marries a Reubenite, which would be terrible? Like, uh, and then Reubenites inherit uh, our land that God promised to us. So you see, they, they want the, the full inheritance. They want what God had promised to them. And how this all hashes out is that there's an assurance for the daughters of Zelophehad that there they, they they would only be, be marriages within the tribe of Manasseh. So you see these ladies, they care about holiness and doing things according to God's Word. They want to go into the Promised Land. They want to live a holy life for God. They want God to be honored, and they want to see uh, His Word Fulfilled, and all of this is demonstrating again that God has he has victoriously refined a new generation. He's like, look at look at how he changed the the hearts of the the daughters of this guy, and look how he he cares for them. He said, when you think about what marks this new generation, what's characteristic of them, so think of Phineas and Zelophehad's daughters. Which you got to learn to say that because we don't want them to. You know, be lost in history just because that name is hard to pronounce. This is a new generation that God has raised up to care about holiness and going into the land. And then the book of Deuteronomy is picking up on preparing them to go into the land. So they get a a sermon series to prepare them for that. And... As I had thought of, on this text, you, know, you see I, I labeled it the fight for holiness, and it reminded me of what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, he told him to fight the good fight of faith. You know, holiness is something to fight for. The Christians are people of a spiritual war. You, know, you think of Ephesians 6, you know, we're not, we're not told to, you know, get in the cruise ship of God. You know, we're, we're told to put on the armor of God because the the Christian life is this struggle of where we've been redeemed, but there's still this principle or instruction of sin in us that we're still enticed toward us. But what has happened is now there's a, while we have an inward peace, we also have an inward struggle all at the same time. And we recognize that if we're going to be Holy, we're going to have to fight for it. Uh, again, you know, with the cruise ship, you can't just sit back on it and it just takes you to holiness. There's something to, you know, the, the recognition of spiritual strife in our life and the struggle to deny ourselves and the, the conflict that we have that should be a comfort to us because it shows, you know, I'm in the Lord's army. <laughs> You know, the reason that I have uh, this conflict in my life right now is because I'm in the right army, (laughs) and that that should be a comfort to us. But also when it comes to our our military strategy, we have to recognize what is it that we're up against? What is it that the the Christian is up against? How would you guys answer that? What are we battling against? Yeah, Satan. Satan. And you think about that with uh, Peter, you know, when when the Lord said, you know, Satan has desired to have you to sift you as wheat, but he was also comforted, and the Lord says, "But I've prayed for you," because <laughs> that's really concerning, because you know, Satan isn't omnipresent. You know, he can focus on one guy at a time, and if he's like putting in his energy just in on you, you're like, "This is really bad," like. He, he has lived longer than me. He's smarter than me. He's stronger than me. But then the Lord says, Peter, I've prayed for you. It's like, I'm going to be all right. <laughs> so we're battling Satan. And ultimately, we're seeing, you know, it, it's the Lord's battle. You know, he's interceding for us. He, he's battling for us. He has, you know, thousands of legions of angels at his disposal. And he's doing all sorts of things behind the scenes for us. Like we saw with, you know, Balaam and his oracles. You know, Israel had no idea that stuff was going on and the Lord was protecting them and they missed the whole Charlie Chaplin show of Balaam and his donkey and that silly thing. What else are we up against besides Satan? Yeah, the you know, our, our own flesh, right? To, you know, it's talked about that in Romans 6 and 7. You know, that, that principle of sin that's, you know, in us. There's a, a weakness of heart. We have an instability in us. That, right, there's that struggle. Of, oh, you know, oh, wretched man that, that I am. I, I, I want to do the, the law of God, but I also find myself struggling to, to do it. You know, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Yeah, it says, thanks be to God. You yeah, he, he's going to do it. Uh, I will be delivered from this. So we battle against the devil. We battle against the flesh. And what else? Yeah, powers, principalities. Yeah, that's kind of like expanding, you know, Satan and his legions and battling that. Larger through You know, prayer, the Word, fellowship obedience. Uh, And Satan is influencing the other thing we battle against, which is the world, you know, the world system, the way that the world thinks and lives. It's talked about as, you know, the image of the beast in Revelation. Instead of people being in the image of God and reflecting His thinking and instruction in life, people are living under the image of the beast, you know, His thinking and way of life, and we're battling against that, that we would not love the world, which is given, you know, to the desires of the eyes, the flesh, pride and possessions and status. Uh, it's, it's a real battle, and we shouldn't be naive about it. You see, that was for Israel. They were enticed with all sorts of things, like, I'm hungry, or, you know, the, the Midianite gals being brought into the camp, all of those sort of things. And we recognize that, you know, we can't, we can't have the, the holiness that God has called us to to enjoy unless we engage in the warfare of pursuing it. But you also recognize that it's, it's not just something that you do individually, it's something that you do congregationally. You know, we're, we are the church militant. You know, this is something that we're battling in together. And you think about in James, it says, confess your sins to one another. You know, there's something for a family devotional time, if you want to do it. Saying Today for family devotions, we are confessing our sins to one another. And it will prove to be a very sweet moment. That's my prediction. Because there's something to recognize in oh, you know, other people have the same struggles that I do, and, you know, these people are also for me. Like, they want to help me. I'm not alone in this. And so, we need to help one another to, you know, battle for holiness. You know, I think about also what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and, you know, abstaining even from the appearance of evil. You know, there's certain people in my my own life I've ask them to do that for me. So if you see something that even just has the appearance of evil, like it it just appears like I could have been prideful or spoken wrongly or had a wrong attitude, just come and tell me. But I also want to be the kind of person that, yeah, I'm approachable that sort of way where they know that, you know, if they bring that up, I'm not going to be super defensive and upset and, you know, blow up or clam up or uh, give them the cold shoulder or a list as long as, as my arm on how I was actually so right in doing that thing. But, that you know, they would think, right, I could say this. He would consider it in humility. And I would know from that other person, you know, they, they care about, you know, my holiness because they care about God's holiness and the church and us pursuing holiness together. So, we, we need friends like that. We need one another in that We also need the the willingness to have that potentially awkward conversation, because a lot of times it it will be, you're going to explain to someone, hey, I love you, I've seen something going on in your life that I'm concerned about, and I just was wondering if you would hear me, and I'm going to say it anyways, because I I have to, (laughs) but I'm asking first to be polite, (laughs) Uh, We want to be a people who cares about holiness in our lives and within the the congregation as a whole so that we're going about that battle together. In J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, I want to read a couple of paragraphs out of that. There's a chapter in there called The Fight. It's one of my favorite chapters. The author is J.C. Ryle. The book is Holiness. If you haven't read it, you can start with the chapter, the, The Fight. And this is from that chapter. He says, Let us take care that our own personal religion is real, genuine, and true. The saddest symptom about so many called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money. They go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or twice every week, but of the great spiritual warfare its watchings and struggles, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests. Of all this, they appear to know nothing at all. Let us take care that this case is not our own. The worst state of soul is when the strong man armed keeps the house and his goods are at peace, when he leads men and women captive at his will and they make no resistance The worst chains are those which are neither neither felt nor seen by the prisoner. We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of true Christian holiness. It is not everything, I am well aware, but it is something Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. We are evidently no friends of Satan. Like the kings of this world, he wars not against his own subjects, The very fact that he assaults us should fill our minds with hope. I say again, let us take comfort. The child of God has two great marks about him, and of these two, we have one. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. Saying, Think about, these concepts are throughout Scripture, you know, Hebrews 12 and the Lord disciplining the Son whom He loves for holiness. You know, it's a reminder that we're legitimate children. We belong to the Lord. That's why He's disciplining us. And that's where we're able to, as James talks about in James 1, to to count those trials as a blessing. You know, He blesses us with trials to perfect us. He blesses us to perfect us. And so, we can be encouraged Again, I'm in the Lord's army. This is a real thing, and uh, He's with me. And within that fight, that's something we want to remember. God is with us. Uh, He's our banner, our rock. He's our help. We're standing on His promises, which He's going to keep. uh, And He's going to have the results that He's promised from those things. And if we engage the fight, it's going to be good for us, and for other people. And there's a, a glorious reward that we must have in the end to receive a reward from the Lord for all of the things that He strengthened us to do, and then to take the crown of those deeds and then to lay them at His feet in worship someday. And that brings us to the end of the book of Numbers encouragement to engage in the fight of holiness together. And for the rest of the summer, there's some uh, topical messages that we're having through the month of August that'll be uh, of interest. The, the next one coming up is gender roles How Your Marriage Preaches in a Genderless World by Dave Witt. So, that'll be on 625 and other other topics like understanding English Bible translations, stewardship, premillennialism, kingdom and covenants, admonishing one another and discipleship within the church, Uh, coming back to the topic of church and state and also the Christian and technology. So, uh, if you get one of these, you can keep up with those topics. I'd personally appreciate any questions that you have on the the topics that I would do, because if you ask them, I can address your question. If you don't, I just talk about whatever I want to on those topics. Yeah, so I'll uh, close us in prayer, and we can continue in being used for one another's holiness, which doesn't mean being hard to get along with every time, but <laughs> all right. Our gracious and holy God, we pray that we would have lives that honor your holiness and that you have made us holy by virtue of extending to us the righteousness which can only be found in Christ, that he is everything that we should be and need, and he is also the one who strengthens us to walk in you and like you, that he is also our example of how to battle against sin and temptation by your word, by knowing your word and standing on your promises and believing them and to speak them, to obey them, to be in the congregation of the saints and to wonder at the reality that you wrote so many letters of instruction to the saints at so many churches and not the sinners at those churches, that so often we can be given to uh, overemphasizing our failures and underemphasizing that your grace is greater than all of our sin. And it's that gift of grace and of righteousness in our Lord Jesus that truly heals us and encourages us and is the thing that sanctifies us. Our salvation starts with Him and continues with Him and ends with Him, and we will always be with Him who has been so gracious to forgive all of our sins. May we be found living lives that are worthy of the gospel call that we have received. Amen.